Hello and welcome to Upfront the Podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. Now, we need to talk about Yemen. With the United States classifying the Houthi rebels in Yemen as a global terrorist organisation, the impact of their attacks on trade ships in the Red Sea is now being felt worldwide and will be felt in a much greater way over the days and weeks to come. But the fact is that Yemen has been in turmoil for over a decade. One of the reasons we haven't heard very much about what is going on there is that very few Western journalists have actually managed to report from inside the country. But I'm delighted to say that our guest this week is one of those journalists, a woman whose extraordinary ingenuity and courageous determination allowed us to hear the stories of a people whose voices would otherwise never be heard. Uh, Freelance journalist Iona Craig, you are very welcome to Upfront. Thanks for having me. Iona, you are an amazing woman, can I just (laughs) just say extraordinary what you have done, uh, really. Um, but, you know, before we go anywhere, because we are uh, Irish people, we have to place you. Um, it's an English accent, but you have strong Irish connections, don't you? Yeah, I do. I mean, my father was Irish um, and, I, you know, I, I'm an Irish national. Um, I hold an Irish passport. And actually, my journey to Yemen really started in North Cork when I was living there and working in horse racing actually for two or three years. And then when I came to leaving Yemen many years later, uh, five years later, I was then back in in living in West Cork for a little while. Um, so yes, uh, although my father's family were from Dublin, when I was living in Ireland, I was, I was in Cork. But as you, yes, as you can hear, very much an English accent, grew up in, in England, but um, but always, yeah, still had ties to, to Ireland at the same time. Okay. I mean, that is so interesting, though, your background, because, you know, you did, you took the scenic route to journalism, if I can put it that way. You actually wanted to be a journalist, though, when you were in school, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was told I wasn't smart enough. I was dyslexic before the days when we all had spell check and computers and everything else. And, you know, I love the horses. I started riding when I was sort of three years old and that seemed to be a much more natural progression. So actually in my year at school, I was the only person that didn't go on to further education. And I went straight into horse racing and riding racehorses, then training racehorses professionally in the UK. Um, I was assistant trainer for five years to Nikki Henderson, um, who's one of the leading jump trainers in England. And then... um, uh, sadly, my father died suddenly in a car crash in 2005 in, in Morocco, and that kind of gave me a new perspective on life, really. And I handed in my trainer's license, and I knew I wanted to make a change, but didn't really know how to go about that or or, or what I was going to do. So I came over to Ireland to help Jim Cullisey, um set up his training establishment in North Cork, and he'd just given up riding in England you know, famously for he was known for his three gold cup wins and winning the Grand National and everything else. And he'd been an old friend of mine, as um, as was his wife. And in fact, I'm now goddaughter one to one of his daughters. But yeah, so I took that time really well. So I was in Ireland to work out what I was going to do next. And I knew I wanted to be in the Middle East. My father had always worked in the region, although I'd never been to Yemen really. And so I kind of looked around and looked at the places where there weren't so many journalists because I was coming into it many years later than most would, probably 10 years later than most people coming out of university. And so, yeah, I went, to, I literally got on the ferry one Saturday 
from Ireland and drove over to England and started at university on the, on the Monday morning to then do a journalism degree to kind of transit from from doing horse racing for yeah the best part of 13 14 years to journalism before we get to the journalism um the horse race i mean it is not for the faint hearted uh, you know was it hunt what was it hunt race what what kind of racing were you so, doing so yeah jump racing mainly i, I did work in a couple of flat yards as well and i trained some flat a, a couple of flat winners myself but yeah my heart was always in the jump racing really i grew up in gloucestershire and in England and very much surrounded by uh, hunting country, and so yeah, my because I'm I'm a I'm pretty sentimental really. So uh, uh, and I think the the jump racing game is much more sentimental perhaps than than the flat racing because the horses are around for longer. Um, they do it for many years rather than being sent off to studs. So so yeah, and I really love that. And I was never happier than when I was outside with the horses. I've never had an office job in my whole entire life. Um, now many years later and yeah I, I don't regret any of that period of my life I got to ride some really amazing horses over the years um, and but was it I mean I do think it takes a lot of courage to get up on a horse in a jump you know in a, a national hunt Um, I don't know if you've been doing it since you were three years old it's not really it's a bit like throwing yourself down a mountain on a, on skis you know most people would think that looks crazy but if you've been doing it for a long time it um, you enjoy the, the, there is the thrill of it, of course. Um, and the thing of working in with some really incredible animals. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, d- I think there, of course there's excitement in it. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. Um, there is the thrill of it. Um, and did you get injured? Oh, well, that was part of the reason why I gave up to be honest with you. <laughs> I broke nearly every bone in my body. I broke, well, that's slight exaggeration, but I did break both my legs, both my ankles, dislocated five vertebrae in my back. Um, I, I don't tend to ta- count fingers and toes as, as breakages, but yeah, I mean, I, I got plenty of bangs on the head. I got knocked out, I don't know, probably around half a dozen times. Um, so yes, that that's one of the downsides of jump racing is the injuries that go with it. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Uh, that's what I mean about the courage it takes. Like when you, you've broken all the, and you still climb up on that horse and get stuck in again. No, my stubbornness always outweighed my stickability. Um, and that's kind of been my thing through life, really. It's not about uh, talent or or bravery. It's about stubbornness. I'm an extremely stubborn person. And that's what has always kept me going, whether it's been getting back on a horse after it's just chucked me on the ground or whether it's, you know, doing investigative journalism in Yemen. It, for me, I'm driven by stubbornness, not by bravery. And Often, um, yeah, my stubbornness has been mistaken for bravery, but uh, I'm quite clear-eyed about about the difference between the two because I, I would <laughs> consider myself particularly brave, but I am incredibly stubborn. So you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, and there's all kinds of journalism you can end up doing, obviously. Did you always have it in your head that that's where, when you went to, to study journalism after, you know, you would have been, what, in your 30s at this stage, in your head, was that so that you could do foreign reporting, war reporting, what you ended up doing? Yes, it was. I mean, I was sort of 31 when I went off to university in, in England. It was because as my father had worked in the Middle East for so long, even though he wasn't a journalist, I always had an interest in the Middle East and a curiosity about it. He would send me postcards from all over the region, you know, when I was younger. And he wasn't into horses at all. He didn't know one of a horse from another. So... 
What was he doing there? Uh, he worked. Iona. He worked in the finance industry, so he was what we call those, you know, back in the day, an investment banker, really, or a um, a merchant banker. And he specialised in Saudi Arabia. Um, he also worked in Bahrain, in Kuwait, and in Jordan. And I think Oman was his favourite place in the region um, to spend time in, anyway, as kind of um, as holiday time. But but yeah, Saudi Arabia became his thing before Saudi Arabia kind of was on the world stage as it is now. I mean, he started working with the Saudis back in the 70s. Um, so yeah, my, I always had an interest in the Middle East. So very much when I started my journalism degree, I really did. I also started doing um, evening classes in Arabic because I already knew I wanted to be in the region, but I wasn't just quite sure where. So when I did decide to go to Yemen, um, it was because I worked out there were very few journalists there. And also that not a lot of people knew much about Yemen, really. Uh, it was a place that interested me. And I thought that I would be there for two years when I first booked my plane ticket and arrived there in early October 2010. And I started working for the local English language newspaper, Yemen Times. And, you know, that all quickly sort of snowballed, really. I, I, I mean, people ask me, how did you get into journalism? And I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask because two weeks after I arrived in Yemen, um, there was a kind of global security incident when Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is based in Yemen, put uh, bombs in printer cartridges on two planes bound for the US. And one was picked up in Dubai and the other one was picked up in England. And so a couple of weeks after arriving, pretty much all hell broke loose in the sense of there was just a swarm of interest in what was going on in Yemen. So the first byline I ever had in any newspaper anywhere was on the same day I had the front page of the Yemen Times, the front page of the Irish Times and the front page of the Times in London. And that, you know, so that that's not how most people get end up getting into journalism. That, that, that was just an absolute classic of being in the right place at the right time. And then, of course, the Arab Spring happened sort of six months later, and I was still in Yemen at the end of 2014 and kind of, uh, and Yemen has become part of my identity, really, <laughs> I think. And um, and you, you studied Arabic before you went there, didn't you? Um, I tried to. I'm, I mean, as as I'm dyslexic in English, I think I, I still, you know, I'm still learning English most of, the, most of the way. But yeah, I did. I mean, it helped me with the reading and writing inside of it, certainly before I left the UK and moved to Yemen. Excuse me. And then once I was there, I was doing one-on-one uh, -on -one Arabic lessons um, several days a week. Although um, I had a slight excuse because once the revolution started in in 2011, I didn't go to Arabic class for about nine months because of the revolution, which is a, a perfect excuse to miss school, I guess. But yeah, um, I, I tried to continue with it. But actually, in Yemen, so few people speak English that really, if you're living out there and you're not in kind of an aid agency scenario where you're working with a lot of foreigners, where you're living in the Yemeni community, you've got to be able to speak some Arabic. Otherwise, you can't buy your food. You can't get in a taxi and get directions to go anywhere. You can't really function without being able to speak some Arabic. So you're, so you're forced to. But yeah, I, can't, I still can't sit down and hold a conversation about in-depth politics with somebody without completely losing track in the, of... of I can get a vague idea of what they're talking about, but but yeah. But you you won't starve. Yeah, I won't starve. Hopefully, <clears throat> I won't get lost. <laughs> so you would have just had time to glimpse what 
Yemen was like before. Yeah. You know, what would what would what was about to come? Yeah. What, what was it like there when you arrived? I mean, I really fell in love with Yemen in so many ways, and I I feel always very nostalgic about it now because the country I fell in love with doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but yeah, it was it was a real privilege actually. Now looking back to be around, not just during 2010, but I think to witness a, a revolution in a country is always a hugely historical moment and something um, of of a real privilege actually to witness a country going through all of that. But yeah, I mean, I loved it. A lot of the Yemenis, you know, remind me of the Irish a lot. Extreme, lots of eccentric people, very welcoming. Um, unbelievable sense of humor. And then I was living in the old city in Sana'a, which is these amazing um, sort of, I think mine was five or six stories high, the house that I lived in, sort of 400-year-old tower houses. And um, yeah, it's just spectacular architecture in the old city and those narrow little streets um, that I learned off the back of, you know, off the back of my hand, really, in the end, I could I love by getting lost in the old city because there's narrow little alleyways. You can't get cars in there. Um, and a lot of my Yemeni friends didn't like living in the old city because it's like living in a village. Um, but I was quite familiar with all of that. And, you know, neighbors were amazing. At one point, you know, when I was living as a woman on my own, um, Yemen is very much a segregated society between um, men and women. But the women next door would hear me coming through the gate and they would, their kitchen was sort of three, four or four floors up and they would throw me large flat round bread out of the window, which I would then catch because I think they felt sorry for me because I was a woman living on my own, which would just never happen in Yemeni society, you know. So, yeah, you had a real community sense. And, um, yeah, it was it, it is a it is a very wonderful place and beautiful as well. Different parts of the country, so different. So I think a lot of people might think of Yemen as being desert and dry and the east of the country is um, largely desert, but the western side is the highlands and is very green when the rains come and you have the kind of terraced farming that you might, you know, you might see in places in Italy or, or towards the Mediterranean. And so actually it's not really hot all the time. It doesn't really get much above 30 degrees, um, but never gets below sort of um, during the day anyway, 16 degrees in the winter. So it's kind of this perfect climate in many respects. And yeah, it's stunning, stunning um, geographically as well. Okay, God, just makes you hear that and that what what has happened there is so, so tragic. Take us to the, I mean, literally the ladybird guide now for for, for people who were struggling to find Yemen on a map. Uh, what kicked off? What kicked it off to begin with? Um. Well, the Houthis pre-existed even the Arab Spring of 2011. So they'd existed since the early 2000s. They were a religious revivalist group, um, a branch of Shia Islam that's almost unique to Yemen called Zaydism. And it really started to kick off after they'd been formed out of a, a youth group. And one of their founders was a guy called Hussein al-Houthi, who was a Yemeni parliamentarian. And he was shot dead by Yemeni security forces in 2004. And the Houthis then collectively, that's what started six rounds of war between the Houthis, as they became known, and the Yemeni government that lasted from where it was on and off between 2004 and 2010. Then the Arab Spring happened. The Houthis largely gave up their weapons and joined the peaceful protests. 
Um, and that saw the removal of Yemen's president, who'd been in power for 33 years, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Now, part of the problem when Saleh left was the deal he was given that was drafted by the US, um, which became known as the GCC deal, uh, gave him immunity from prosecution and allowed him to stay in Yemen. Now, of course, he was Ali Abdullah Saleh and he wanted to regain power, even though he'd had to give it up because of the revolution. And so having fought six wars with the Houthis, he did a deal with them um, and his loyalists in the army joined forces with the Houthis and they started to take territory. And the Houthis, are, their homeland is right up in the northern areas of Yemen, up near the Saudi border. And they started to push further south until they got to the capital, Sana'a, in 2014 and effectively took to, took over the entire government and were able to do that because all of those guarding it were loyalists in the military to the former president. And the civil war basically started in 2014, but it then progressed in 2015 because the Houthis got so far as to pushing the new president out of the country and he was forced into exile and went to Saudi Arabia. So then Saudi Arabia got involved. They started um, what sounds very familiar now as happening in the last couple of days, a bombing campaign that they thought would last a couple of weeks. And seven years later, they were still trying to bomb the Houthis into submission. The UAE had also uh, allied with them and had put um, forces on the ground, backed various militias. And now you have uh, a fault lines uh, of the front lines in the war in Yemen, roughly the same as what uh, as the kind of border territory that used to be between North and South Yemen. So it was two separate countries in, until 1990. And... So the the conflict internally in Yemen has been relatively quiet since since 2022. But then when the Hamas attack happened on October 7th of last year and Israel's response in Gaza, that was when the Houthis started to flex their muscles again, having gained a lot of territory on the Red Sea during the civil war in Yemen, including a major port called Hodeida. They then started launching attacks initially with uh, mid-range ballistic missiles up to Israel, but none of them hit their targets. And then they hijacked a vessel in the Red Sea in November um, and took it into Hodeida. They've still got that vessel and its crew and then started launching regular attacks on international shipping that they said was targeting Israeli vessels or ships bound for Israel because they were doing this in support of the Palestinians Um and pushing Israel for a ceasefire in Gaza and to allow humanitarian aid in. And they did that, those those attacks did actually pause at the same time as the humanitarian pause happened in Gaza last year, but then restarted and really escalated in the last couple of weeks. Um, and the US had been repeatedly warning the Houthis because of the devastating impact it was having on commercial shipping. That route past Yemen through the Red Sea is where 15% of global trade goes from east to west, from the Far East to Europe, and is crucial, therefore, to the global economy. So the US had sent out warnings, and the UK had. Um, the Houthis kept pushing back against that, attacking ships, until then, last week, we saw the US and the UK launch airstrikes. And... Yeah, I think this could go on for some time. The Houthis are very emboldened. They have no intention to back down. Um, they've been bombed for seven years by the Saudis. They've been sanctioned. They've been blockaded. Um, they are now the heroes of the hour because this has proved extremely popular, what they're doing in the region, because there's, there's been a huge vacuum, really, of any of the Arab nations taking a stand 
to support the Palestinians, support the people of Gaza, or challenge what Israel has been doing in the devastating war in Gaza. And so the Houthis have really filled that vacuum. They It's boosted their popularity hugely at home. Even on the anti-Houthi side in Yemen civil war, um, Yemenis support what the Houthis have done and even now support them uh, against America in what is now becoming a sort of tit-for-tat attacks between the Houthis and US warships uh, and also regionally. So this has been a very popular move regionally on the street. That's why you haven't seen Arab nations come out in support of what America and the UK have been doing in the forms of airstrikes because they don't want to be seen to backing the US and the UK in a, in their stance, which they see as being in favor of Israel. So any Arab nations do not want to be seen to be supporting what may be a pro-Israeli attacks on the Houthis. So it all gets quite complicated, but but yeah, it's it's um it's not going to end anytime soon. It's not. And of course of course the Houthis are, are Iran backed by Iran as well in that region openly. So Yeah, I, I didn't mention that. The Houthis, the I mean, they wouldn't have been able to take the capital Sanar without the support of the former president Saleh. They then turned on Saleh and killed him in twenty seventeen. But since twenty fourteen really They've only been able to continue doing what they're doing and they can only do what they're doing today because of Iran, because the weapons they've supplied to them, the training they've given them, the ballistic missiles they now have, the anti-ship cruise missiles that they've been deploying, all of the drone um, capability that they have, they only have that because of Iran. Iran has either supplied them with those weapons or they've trained them how to build them domestically at home. So yeah, the Houthis have gone for this kind of ragtag Yemeni militia from the highlands in Yemen to this now really sophisticated non-state actor that is literally diverting the course of international shipping. Yeah, when you put it like that, so extraordinary. But of course, the US have pumped so much military might into that, into that, uh, into the Saudis campaign there, haven't they? And it has, from time to time, become a difficult one for them to stand over. I mean, particularly around the time of the blockade. I mean, I think people here, if even people who wouldn't be that familiar with Yemen, because there was uh, NGOs, uh, you know, calling for funds um, this, for the, the famine uh, in Yemen, a lot of people would have been kind of aware that there was something horrific unfolding there behind, behind uh, as we say, in, in behind lines that we, we haven't really got much access to. Yeah, absolutely. As much as, you know, you can blame the Houthis for having started this civil war, what the Saudis did um, resulted in hundreds of thousands of Yemenis dying, many of them children, as a knock-on effect from the war. So not in the direct fighting, but in the humanitarian crisis that ensued. And that was really down to the, the de facto blockade that the Saudis created to stop um, goods and food going into Houthi-controlled territory, but it had an effect across the border in Yemen because it, it happened in other ports as well. Um, the the Saudis also then were targeting um, Yemeni's capabilities of being able to feed themselves, i.e. farms and fishermen, etc. So yes, it resulted in a devastating humanitarian crisis that effectively the UK and the US and the international community were supporting because they were supporting Saudi Arabia, not just diplomatically, but militarily in the sense that we were providing them with all the weapons, done all the training, you know, much like Iran is doing with the Houthis now, 
the US and the UK was doing to Saudi Arabia. Um, but the irony of the whole scenario is at the moment is the Saudis certainly since 20, at least 2022 have been desperate to extract themselves from the conflict in Yemen because the Houthis won territorially, politically, militarily, and the Saudis just want to get themselves out of the conflict because they're fed up of having Houthi ballistic missiles fired in their country when they've got all these grand visions for 2030 of building great tourist locations. They've got, you know, football, you know, international football matches going on, golf, all the rest of it. They want that secure. They want that future secure. So they want to extract themselves from this conflict. And they were about to do a, a deal with the Houthis that was imminent when the October 7th attack happened uh, by Hamas in Israel and basically put all of this on hold. So it's been the Saudis, actually, ironically, who have been asking the UK and the US not to bomb the Houthis to show restraint because they're worried about it derailing the political deals they're trying to do with the Houthis as well. So, yeah, the, the, it's it, it's kind of flipped the scenario on its head because a while back it was the US, certainly, that was asking the Saudis to show restraint against bombing the Houthis. And now the scenario has has changed hands. The reason we don't know a lot about this, as I said at the top, uh, is that so few journalists actually got in there uh, during the height of this. You had actually left when it's the serious uh, conflict kicked off. Did you, was there any, any question but that you would go back in to cover it? There wasn't once it all sort of, it, it took off with the Saudis starting airstrikes in March 2015. So I actually had a flight booked back when the airstrikes happened. They, it was booked back, about, I was booked to go back on a commission about three days after the airstrikes happened. But it shut down the entire airspace and it became quite clear that these airstrikes, the Saudi took control of the airspace, that these airstrikes were not going to stop anytime soon. So they kept postponing the flight that I was booked on until they said it's not going to happen. So yeah, there wasn't any question. I think mainly for me, because, you know, my time living there full time, um, Yemenis had always been very open with me, as people often are with journalists. They literally welcomed me into their homes. They told me their stories. They fed me. They were always very welcoming. And this was at a point when, um, you know, but previously I'd always needed them. And now they needed me in the sense that they needed somebody to be able to tell the story of what was going on. And it was so difficult to get in the country at that point, only because of the relationships I'd um, made and the contacts that I'd made during my time living there was I able to get back. And so I actually, I did it three times in 2015. I took a boat from Djibouti into Yemen um, across the Bab el-Mendab by sea, which actually we came under attack from from the Houthi missiles at one point, which all sounds very familiar now. And But yeah, at, uh, at that time I was going, I went in and out of the boat because that was the only way to get into Yemen. I'm not great at sea, I have to say, but um yeah, it wasn't it wasn't something that I would want to do on a regular basis. Uh, and did you have to like what were you going in there? You didn't go in as a journalist, did you? What were you? I did. Yeah. Um, did I, you? Yeah, I did. But I went in on a humanitarian vessel. Um, they wouldn't take any other journalists, but I knew the people who were involved in bringing that vessel in, and so they agreed to take me in and out. But I mean, I had a visa, but there was no. The, when I got into Aden, which is where the boat was coming into, it was under siege by the Houthis. So there was, and it was about to fall entirely to Houthi control. So the Houthis were preventing any aid, food, even water getting into the city, into the civilian population, because they were trying to take the city at that point. Um, and it was it was pretty devastating to turn up in Aden, having spent time there before when I was living 
in Yemen and to see what was unfolding. And I was, yeah, I, I stayed for several weeks at that time. Then I, I realized it wasn't safe for me to be reporting from inside the country. So in order to get those stories out, I kind of had to leave to then be able to um, get that footage out, write the stories that I had to write. And then I went back again. Um, and then I stayed for several months. Cut a very long story short, by the end of 2015, I ended up in Houthi-controlled territory. I was put under house arrest. They seized my passport and I wasn't able to leave even if I wanted to. But um, equally, I wasn't able really to do much work because I yeah, yeah I had armed Houthis out, outside the gate of where I was staying. So yeah, it took me a little while to, to get myself back out of Yemen again in 2015. But um, I think it was worth it. It was worth it. You say that very matter-of-factly, but that sounds like a very hairy situation that you you ultimately found yourself in. I mean, was it very? Do you feel? Did you feel personally scared at, at many points during that that time? I've had my moments over the years when I've been in Yemen. I had somebody tried to. Well, I mean, I think it went down as an assassination attempt, but yeah, somebody tried to kill me back in 2013, so even before the war started, um, in a, when I was in the back of a taxi. Don't know why, not exactly clear who it was. I mean, people said to me, have you got any enemies? I said, well, how, you know, the list is long, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I just interviewed the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and he was particularly angry with the British at the time. The only reason he, he spoke to me is because I was writing for the Times in London. So there may have been a connection there. But it all got a little bit out of hand after the incident happened because various elements, partisan elements within the, the Yemeni media were blaming other factions. And that was when I decided that it would be good to go home for a couple of weeks. So I went home for okay. a couple of weeks and, and came back. So, so, so you were in a car that was... How, how, to describe what... Yeah. I when mean, you say somebody tried to kill me, Sam... <laughs> I feel I feel we're missing a good story here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, it's kind of funny because you get used to so you get used to that kind of level of existential threat, and it becomes normalised. Uh, I mean, I had six friends kidnapped when I was living in Yemen, and you just it became not routine sounds wrong, but yeah, you live at that kind of hyper alert and hyper awareness for so many years that it, it does become normal. But yeah, in that particular instance, I literally just flagged down a taxi. I'd been to, I was coming from a political rally. It was the first rally that the former President Saleh had held since he'd been pushed out of office. And I literally just flagged down a taxi, a random taxi to go home, got in the back and we. I was driving through, there's a, a kind of sunken road that sits outside the old city in Sana'a. And as we were driving past, whether it's coincidence or not, I don't know, but the Ministry of Defence, a vehicle pulled out in front of us, blocked the road. And then somebody, I was actually probably saved by the fact that I had my head down and I was sending a text message to my to 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 a colleague of mine who's um who's another journalist I was sending him a text message on so my head down and somebody opened fire from literally over my my right shoulder and the bullets came through the window obviously smashed all the glass uh and the taxi driver was very quick thinking he looked round saw I lay down in the in the footwell and kind of played dead he looked round saw that I was all right swung around that vehicle and just took off down the road um and the back windscreen was actually blacked out in that taxi that I happened to be in so I just kept lying on the floor pretending I was dead until we got out of there and the taxi driver I, I got him to my house later on to pay him for the damage to his car um but yeah he said he felt the bullets go through the hair on the back of his neck so 
yeah, it, he was. Yeah, we were both kind of quite amazed that we'd made that out of out of that situation live. He didn't know I was a journalist at that time. When I told him, he kind of put his head in his hands and said, "What were you doing getting my taxis?" <laughs> I still said, "Don't worry, I won't call you again for a ride." <laughs> so yeah. Um. <laughs> So that that was just one of a number of hairy moments, is what you're saying? Well, I think anybody who's covered conflict for a long time, you you have those kind of hairy moments. Um, there's, you know, there were several of them during 2011. I think a lot of them, I put myself in situations that I was just naive, and it was the first time that I'd been involved in um, not just street protests, but then what involved, you know, live ammunition being fired in a in a built up area when you're with protesters. So. Yeah, I had scenarios there where I was extremely lucky to come out in one piece, you know, in in a night time with running with protesters who were being shot at by scores of soldiers and where many people were shot one night, you know, 200 odd people were injured and 12 were were killed and I was running alongside people that were literally dropping either side of me. So yeah, um I, I was foolish probably at that time to have got myself in that scenario so so yeah by 2050 when I went to the front line when the civil war started um I kind of uh I was actually quite glad that I felt scared because it was the first time I had done I, I got too bold I think by 20 you know in 2011 having everything become too normalized that I didn't really feel scared or worried about any of that kind of scenario I had that slight bring it on sort of attitude again the stubbornness rather than bravery so yeah, in 2015, when I went back on the front lines and I did feel scared, I was glad that I felt scared because I think that's a a dangerous route to go down when you kind of get that risk of being addicted to that adrenaline. Um, not only is that, you know, how you end up getting hurt, but it's also just not healthy long-term to to be kind of, you know, running to the front lines for, for some kind of adrenaline buzz, buzz. I think if you're into that, then go and join the army because it's, you know, it's much more honest to, to do that. That was my next question, actually. You're back. You're obviously based in London now. I know you were back in again in the last... Uh, no, 2022, yeah, was the 22 last... 22, you were back in. The um, Do you miss it? Do you, I mean, I, I just feel if you do live for very prolonged periods with that, you know, extra cortisol coursing through your veins, it, it must, you know, does, you know, life, in, in normal life feel quite dull? Uh, I don't know, actually, because I've had health issues as a result of, of all of this. And um, only because I've spent enough time out of Yemen that my it's kind of caught up with me, um, which I've only found out in the in the last couple of months, really. I've got a diagnosis and all that kind of stuff that has basically my brain got stuck in freeze, fight, flight or fight mode. And um, it was causing me balance issues and all sorts of stuff. So, so yeah, that's the long-term impact of doing that kind of thing you think you're fine at the time you may even think you're fine afterwards um but we all have our limits and your body will feel it even if you're in denial of it mentally i mean i miss yemen in the sense of i miss all my yemeni friends and i miss the place that i fell in love with all that time ago but it doesn't really exist anymore it's the country that i fell in love with does not exist and all my friends that i had in yemen most of them have left because of the war some of them are still there but I wouldn't even be able to go and see them and hang out with them because it would be too risky for them to be associated with a journalist now. So yeah, I I have a huge nostalgia for the for a country that that doesn't exist. But I still, you know, I still do go back. I still do love going back. And 
whenever I'm here, I want to go back there, even if it's just for the weather sometimes when it's freezing cold in, in January in England. Um, but it will always be a part of me. I, I mean, I've, I lived, it's the longest time I've lived in one place as an adult was living in Yemen. And so, yeah, a little bit of me will always be Yemeni. And I have many Yemeni friends who keep saying to me, oh, you, you're Yemeni now, you should be a Yemeni citizen. And yeah, I would quite happily have a Yemeni passport if they allowed me to have one and, and give up my British one in exchange. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's always going to be a very dear place to me. And um, I will I will always, I think, want to go back at some point. In terms of going back to the international story, like what should we be watching in how things are developing here that should worry us? Or like where where do you see the danger points now? I think what we should all be realistic about now is this is a wider conflict and it's not just because of the Houthis in the Red Sea um, who are sort of standing up for the Palestinian cause, but also what's going on elsewhere in the region. We've even seen in in the last few days with Iran carrying out airstrikes in, in Pakistan and vice versa. I mean, I was totting this up yesterday and you have now got 17 countries that have engaged militarily uh, or have been bombed or in the case of sort of four of them, I have said that they've supported the US and UK airstrikes sort of with intelligence and logistics. So that's 17 countries in the fallout of what was, uh, you know, a Hamas attack and then Israel's response. So um, including Israel and Palestine, yeah, that's 17 countries involved. Um, You've got seven or eight now non-state actors on top of that. So this is a wider conflict, whether we want to call it that or not. The the UK and the US can deny this is all connected to Israel as long as they like, but that doesn't make it so. And all of these events are connected. Uh, so yeah, of course, everybody's concerned about escalation. At the moment, it's all sort of relatively low-level incidents, but they are all connected. And that's why I think the risk of escalation is so huge because you've only got to have a miscalculation in all of those multiple incidents now that are happening across the region from Lebanon and Hezbollah to Iran carrying out attacks to the Houthis. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, the tipping, a tipping point into something bigger and much worse is very real. And I'm really concerned about that. And I'm also concerned because at the moment, the Houthis are relishing this opportunity to fight America. They've wanted to do it for all of their existence. Um, a large part that, you know, they have this very uh, anti-Israeli, anti-Western star- stance. And a lot of that comes out of America's invasion of Iraq going back. And a lot of these activities now that are happening in the region have been in the the planning for many, many years, if not decades. Whereas I think in Western governments and societies, we 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 don't think in in the long term like that. We work in election cycles of four years, maybe eight years at best. Whereas in the Middle East, you've got um, authorities that have been in power for decades and plan to be in power for many more decades. So their planning is in the tens of years at least, uh, whereas ours is in sort of four year cycles. And that's why we will always get outplayed, if you like. And so we end up being reactionary when we're facing a kind of long-term strategic planning and aims by uh, countries in the Middle East or um, non-state actors in the region as well. 
So yeah, I think the the potential for escalation is huge. I mean, probably everybody listening is going, well, why do we have to worry about this? Well, at the moment, it's because the Houthis' ability to disrupt the economies, particularly of Europe, because of what they're doing. So we've already seen year on year, January of this year, first week of January compared to first week of January last year, a 90% um, fall in the amount of cargo vessels going through the Suez Canal. So instead of going through the Suez Canal, they're having to take at least 10 days, two weeks extra at sea around South Africa and the Cape of Good Hope. That all costs money. Um, the war risk insurance for vessels still going through the Suez Canal has gone up significantly. And we're not looking at a supply chain crisis that we face during the COVID pandemic. But if this continues, we could do it's certainly worse than the ever given incident, which people may remember was when the tanker got stuck in the canal and, and that lasted a week. Um, but I think this could go on for many months and then will impact all of us, I think, in the, in the next couple of weeks in the, in the sense of the price of goods and the availability of goods. That impacts inflation, the ability of governments to reduce interest rates. So this could impact you know people's mortgages as well as what they're buying in the shops, whether it be clothes bits for their cars, cars even at all, uh, and all of those kind of things. So, And this affects Europe in particular because of the geography of it. Uh, at the same time, it will impact America, but to a lesser extent on the East Coast. About 30% of vessels that are coming to Europe from the Far East then end up going to America. But yeah, it's going to have a huge impact on the, on the countries across Europe um, if this continues, and I think it will. Okay, on that cheery note, Iona, <laughs> listen, thank you so much. I could actually, I could talk to you all day. It's been such a, a privilege and such an education. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, there's not many people that take the route from horse racing in Ireland to journalism in Yemen. So it might be a bit of a niche subject for some people. <laughs> and that was Iona Craig. Thanks for listening to Upfront, the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can message us on social media at RT Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 087-677-1000. And don't forget to tune in to us on Upfront Monday evenings at 10.35 on RT1 and on the RT Player. And I'll talk to you then.